any view of inerrancy which doubts the historical and scientific statements in the Bible should be dismissed because all of Christianity hinges on one historical and scientific event, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan, and in the last episode, we discussed the topic of biblical inspiration and saw that every single word of the Bible is inspired by God. In this episode, we are going to discuss the topic of biblical inerrancy, which, put simply, is the belief that the Bible is without error. We will start by examining different views of biblical inerrancy and then determine which views are legitimate based on the teachings of Jesus and the Bible. We will then look at how the doctrine of inerrancy is essential for a consistent Christian worldview. We will now look at five different views of inerrancy, and these views were taken straight from one of the most popular theology books used in seminaries titled Christian Theology by Miller J. Erickson. The five views are 1. Absolute inerrancy, which holds that the Bible, which includes rather detailed treatment of matters both scientific and historical, is fully true. The impression is conveyed that the biblical writers intended to give a considerable number of exact scientific and historical data. Thus, apparent discrepancies can and must be explained. 2. Full inerrancy, which also holds that the Bible is completely true. While the Bible does not primarily aim to give scientific and historical data, such scientific and historical assertions as it does make are fully true. Full inerrancy regards scientific and historical references as phenomenal, that is, they are reported the way they appear to the human eye. So, they are not necessarily exact, rather, they are popular descriptions, often involving general references or approximations, yet they are correct. What they teach is essentially correct in the way they teach it. 3. Limited inerrancy, which states that even though the Bible is completely true in its theological teachings, God did not inspire the biblical authors to be correct in their scientific or historical claims. Therefore, limited inerrancy claims that the Bible can and does include errors in terms of its historical and scientific claims. 4. Inerrancy of purpose, which basically says that even though the Bible may contain factual errors, this doesn't matter. This view claims that the Bible faithfully accomplishes its purpose, which is to bring people into a right relationship with God and that the scientific, historical, and even theological accuracy of the Bible is irrelevant. And 5. Accommodated Revelation, which claims that the Bible can and does contain errors not only in history and science, but also theology. 
proponents of this view actually claim that the Bible contradicts itself in its theological teachings and that this is because it was written by fallible humans which were not fully inspired by God while composing their writings. Now that we've looked at some different views of inerrancy, let's see which view is most congruent with the Christian faith. It should be noted that once somebody understands the degree to which God inspired the Bible, a belief in inerrancy logically follows. Since God knows everything, and he inspired every word of the Bible, naturally, the entire Bible would be correct and have no errors in it. This not only includes the realm of theology, but also the realms of science and history. This certainly appears to be the view of scripture that Jesus had, as he stated in John 10.35 that the scripture cannot be broken. Furthermore, the Gospels consistently portray Jesus as treating the history recorded in the Old Testament as completely true. This even includes things that may make the majority of people living in modern America somewhat uncomfortable. In Matthew 12.40, Jesus states that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Luke 17, verses 26 to 29, Jesus exclaims that just like it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So, we see here that Jesus compares Jonah being swallowed by a whale to his resurrection. He also compares the flood of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to his second coming. The obvious conclusion is, if the story of Jonah, the flood of Noah, and the destruction of Sodom did not actually occur, then one has no basis for believing that Jesus actually rose from the dead or that he will come back, which is incompatible with the Christian faith. Jesus also refers to Adam and Eve's son Abel, God's institution of marriage in Genesis 1, Moses, King David, King Solomon, and many more Old Testament characters and events as being historically accurate. Now, for a Christian to be logically consistent, they must agree with Jesus' views, because he is God. The statements of Jesus make it clear that he takes a very literal view of the history presented in the Old Testament. Therefore, believing that the history in the Old Testament is merely some figurative poem that has no basis in actual reality is contrary to the view Jesus promoted. And it's also contrary to the views that the New Testament authors promoted. Just one quick example is the genealogy in Luke, which traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam himself. A lot of people doubt the historicity of Adam and Eve, 
but Jesus and the New Testament authors clearly believed in a historical Adam and Eve. Not only is it against the teachings of Jesus to deny the history in the Bible, but it is also against plain logic. If the Bible contains errors in areas that can be tested, there is no way to truly know if it is accurate in areas where it cannot be tested. For example, if the Bible is wrong in any of its scientific statements in Job, then there is no reason to accept its claim that Moses parted the sea in Exodus or that Jesus walked on water. This would ultimately result in a total collapse of the biblical worldview and a destruction of any true Christian faith. That's because it is impossible to separate the theological claims of the Bible from its historical claims because they are intimately connected. The Bible tells of Yahweh's interaction with the world in real history, so to dismiss the historical claims of the Bible as irrelevant or completely false destroys any foundation for being Christian. The ultimate example of this, and the main reason that any view of inerrancy which doubts the historical and scientific statements in the Bible should be dismissed, is because all of Christianity hinges on one historical and scientific event, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.14 plainly states that if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Again, Paul writes in verse 17 that if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain and you are still in your sins. Therefore, we can be certain that the views of accommodated revelation, inerrancy of purpose, and limited inerrancy are all false because they deny the importance and validity of the history and science presented in the Bible. If one claims to be Christian yet holds one of these liberal views of inerrancy, there is a major conflict in their beliefs. Hence, we are left with the views of absolute inerrancy and full inerrancy. Recall that both absolute and full inerrancy assert that all statements in the Bible are completely true. It's just that absolute inerrancy believes historical and scientific statements are all described from a literal, objective point of view, while full inerrancy believes that historical and scientific statements are described from the way the biblical authors witness them, or from more of a subjective view based off of what the situation would have looked like to man. While absolute inerrancy and full inerrancy are quite similar, an example which demonstrates the difference between them can be found in Numbers 31, where the Bible describes that the plunder which the Israelites acquired from war included 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, and 61,000 donkeys. Though it is totally possible that these are the exact numbers of animals that the Israelites counted, it is also reasonable to conclude that these numbers have been rounded to the nearest thousands place. A strict view of absolute inerrancy would say these numbers are exact. 
while full inerrancy would say they are rounded. Due to the large-scale numbers at use here, I would not consider this record to be in error if the numbers did happen to be rounded. If my friend were to tell me that he made $80,000 last year, I would not call him a liar if his actual salary was $80,137.82. Likewise, even though I may be 26 years, 8 months, 21 days, 9 hours, and 17 seconds old, if I told you that I was just 26 years old, you would not say my statement was in error. So, I don't think it is honest to apply a hyper-literal approach to statements which are clearly not intended to be analyzed to that degree of specificity. Another example would be the Bible statement in Genesis 28.11 that the sun was set. We obviously all know that the sun does not literally set, but we use phrases like sunset and sunrise to communicate certain times of the day. That's why the view of inerrancy which I hold to is absolute inerrancy with concern for context, which is basically a blend of absolute and full inerrancy. While some explanations offered by full inerrancy legitimately apply to biblical passages which describe the sun is setting, numbers being rounded, etc., I personally do not want to completely commit to the definition of full inerrancy. That's because even though I do think full inerrancy is fine for Christians to believe in, one must be careful not to go too far with this view because it may result in an overemphasis of man's role in writing the Bible and an underemphasis of God's role. This could naturally lead to one starting to pick and choose what they wanted to believe was true in the Bible without any interpretive basis. For example, if someone started to discount the clear history recorded in Genesis and Exodus by claiming that these stories were just ancient man trying to describe the world around him from a figurative standpoint, that would be unbiblical based on the context of these writings as well as how the rest of the Bible views them. Again, I just want to emphasize that I think both absolute and full inerrancy are acceptable views for Christians to have. You just have to be careful from being hypo-literal with full inerrancy and from being hyper-literal with absolute inerrancy. After discussing these different views of inerrancy in his book, Erickson states his own definition of inerrancy which I believe is similar to that of many people, especially scholars. His definition is that the Bible, when correctly interpreted in light of the level to which culture and the means of communication had developed at the time it was written, and in view of the purpose for which it was given, is fully truthful in all that it affirms. Now, the major problem I have with Erickson's definition is that it implies that the truthfulness of a statement is dependent on the cultural views held by the person who made the statement. This is an elementary error in logic, and I believe it fails to adequately respect the degree to which God inspired the Bible.
The circumference of a circle is always its diameter multiplied by pi, no matter what culture you are from. Likewise, the logical law of non-contradiction is not confined to only certain parts of the world. There can never be both A and not A at the same time in this universe. Laws of logic, mathematics, physics, etc. are universal, and obviously God knows this. After all, he made these laws. Though the Bible may use metaphor, phenomenological language, and mathematical rounding at times, statements concerning raw fact are either false or true, regardless of what culture they are made in. Therefore, I strongly disagree with Erickson's definition of inerrancy because historical and scientific facts are universal and are not dependent on culture or human perception. So far in this episode, we've looked at different views of inerrancy and were able to determine which ones were false and which were acceptable based on the teachings of Jesus, logic, and the Bible. We saw that any view of inerrancy which allows for error in the historical, scientific, or theological statements anywhere in the Bible contradicts the teachings of Jesus and ultimately erodes any foundation for a consistent Christian worldview. To wrap up this episode, I want to emphasize the effect that a wrong view of inerrancy has on biblical inspiration, which is the idea that God inspired every word of the Bible, and biblical authority, which is the idea that the Bible is authoritative and should be submitted to. Believing that the Bible does contain errors inevitably results in a very weak view of biblical inspiration and authority. If one believes that the Bible does contain errors, then any confidence in the inspiration of the Bible goes out the window, because if the Bible did contain errors, then God could not have truly inspired these errant passages, because God knows all things and cannot lie, according to 1 John 3.20 and Hebrews 6.18. Therefore, believing the Bible has errors results in one believing that only parts of the Bible might be inspired by God. This naturally leads to a total collapse in the Christian worldview because there would be no way to tell which parts of the Bible are inspired and which are not. That's why the false religion known as progressive Christianity is irrational and antichrist, because one of the typical beliefs of progressive Christianity is that the Bible isn't really inspired by God in the literal sense. It's no surprise that progressive Christians typically believe this, because they also tend to believe that the Bible has errors and contradictions. So it's clear that the beliefs of inspiration and inerrancy are closely related. Concerning the relationship between authority and inerrancy, I pointed out earlier that if the Bible contains errors in areas that can be tested, there is no way to truly know if it is accurate in areas where it cannot be tested. If the Bible contains errors, then there is no way to know if what it says is actually true, and therefore it lacks actual authority because something must be true for it to be authoritative. And of course, 
it is no coincidence that proponents of progressive Christianity commonly reject the Bible's authority by promoting things such as homosexuality, universalism, abortion, and more. Just to provide an example here, I'm on the website of a liberal progressive church called the Bethel Congregational United Church of Christ. And on their website, they have their building with a big rainbow flag in front of the entrance, demonstrating that they do not respect God's stance on homosexuality. And when discussing progressive Christianity and how it relates to their church, they note that we do not believe the Bible is the inerrant or infallible word of God. We don't believe that people of other faiths are going to hell unless they convert to Christianity. We don't deny the right of women to choose what happens to their bodies. And of course, there's all sorts of logical fallacies and contradictions in that statement there. When a woman gets an abortion, she's not harming her own body, she's killing another human being. And Jesus himself said that he is the only way to the Father. Multiple verses make it very clear that the only way to receive salvation from hell is by faith alone on Jesus Christ. So this is just the example of a cult that is masquerading as Christianity and teaching damnable heresies. And that's because they have no foundation in biblical inspiration, inerrancy, or authority. So the whole church, as they call themselves, has fallen apart and they are teaching uh, very antichrist ideas. And that is all we have time for in today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand the degree of inerrancy which is needed for a consistent Christian worldview. And in our next episode, we will end this three-part series by talking about biblical authority. Have a good day. Bye.